Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Wading into the Waters, the Baptism of Jesus, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 13, 2008. In The Last Temptation of Christ, a 1988 film by Martin Scorsese, based upon the novel by Nikos Kazantakis, we watch a very human Jesus. He confesses his sins, he fears insanity, he wonders if he's merely a man, and he anguishes over the people he didn't heal. In his last temptation, during his execution, Jesus has a hallucination sent to him by Satan. He imagines what his life might have been like if he had chosen the path of an ordinary man. He imagines himself marrying Mary Magdalene, growing old and having kids. But then he sees the disciples reproaching him for abandoning his special mission. And through their reproach, he returns to consciousness to accomplish his final suffering, death, and resurrection. Many Christians were outraged by Scorsese's film and considered it blasphemous. Blockbuster Video even refused to carry it. What seemed to bother many Christians was the suggestion that Jesus was fully and truly human, that he was a person who experienced trials and temptations, faults and failures, just like we do. Torment, doubt, loneliness, questions, fantasies, confusion, despair, erotic dreams, and, in his final hours, feeling abandoned by God himself. With his baptism, Jesus fully identified with fallen humanity. The Gospel of Matthew has already tipped his hand in this regard. On page one of his gospel, Matthew lists 42 men in the genealogy of Jesus, and then he lists four women with unsavory pasts. Tamar was widowed twice, then became a victim of incest when her father-in-law abused her as a prostitute. Rahab was a foreigner and a whore who protected the Hebrew spies by lying. Ruth was also a foreigner and a widow while Bathsheba was the object of David's adulterous passion and murderous cover-up. These four women stick out like a sore thumb, but they nevertheless form part of Jesus' family of origin. Then, on page 2, Matthew honors the pagan magi from Persia who worship Jesus with their gifts. Page 3 brings us to his baptism. To airbrush this fully human Jesus is to fall prey to something like the second century heresy of docetism that claimed that Jesus only seemed to be human. Surely, it goes, he couldn't have been polluted by our material existence. But in trying to protect Jesus from a genuine human nature, we do the exact opposite of what he himself does in his baptism. Instead of insulating himself from us, Jesus fully participates with us. 
After living in total obscurity his entire life, in his late 20s Jesus left his family in Nazareth and burst onto the public scene by joining the movement of his eccentric cousin, John the Baptizer. Perhaps Jesus submitted himself to John as a disciple, to a mentor. John might have been part of the apocalyptic Jewish sect of Essenes who opposed the temple in Jerusalem. By any measure, John the Baptizer was a prophet of radical dissent. His detractors had good reason to say that he acted like he had a demon. Luke 7.33 Whereas his father was a priest in the Jerusalem temple, John fled the comforts and corruptions of the city for the loneliness of the desert. There he dressed in animal skins and ate insects and wild honey. Living on the margins of society, both literally and figuratively, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins which is to say that John announced a message of both indictment and invitation. We read in Mark 1.15, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Later, Jesus repeated John's exact words to announce his own public ministry. Contrary to what we might have expected from such an ascetic man with an austere message, the Gospels say that people flocked to John the Baptist. John's preaching in the Judean desert and his baptizing in the Jordan River confronted both the religious and the political powers of his day. Imperial Rome eventually beheaded him when John rebuked Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife. The temple establishment in Jerusalem, which claimed a sort of gatekeeper monopoly on mediating God's forgiveness to people, didn't like him preaching from the periphery either. John castigated these religious authorities as a brood of vipers, or as one translator puts it, snake bastards. The religious experts said Jesus spurned John's call to baptismal repentance, and in so doing, we read in Luke 7.30, they rejected God's purpose for themselves. Instead of cooperation, accommodation, or resignation, John the Baptist challenged these religious and political powers with his anti-establishment message of protest and renewal. By joining John the Baptizer's fringe movement, Jesus did likewise. With some important stylistic differences, all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' baptism by John. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3, 13-17 No wonder that after this radical rupture with his family and conventional society, by identifying with the desert troublemaker, eventually Jesus' own family tried to apprehend him. The village of Nazareth tried to kill him as a deranged crackpot. Why did Jesus the Greater submit to baptism by John, 
the lesser. Did he need to repent of his own sins? The earliest witnesses of his baptism asked this very question, because in Matthew's Gospel, John the Baptist tried to deter Jesus. Why do you come to me? asked John. I need to be baptized by you. John insinuates that Jesus was not getting baptized for his own sins. Even a hundred years later, Jesus' baptism made some Christians feel uneasy. In the non-canonical Gospel of the Hebrews, which was written somewhere between 80 and 150 A.D., Jesus denies that he needs to repent. He seems to get baptized to please his mother. We read in the Gospel of Hebrews, quote, The mother of the Lord and his brothers said to him, John the Baptist baptizes for the forgiveness of sins. Let us go and be baptized by him. But Jesus said to them, In what way have I sinned that I should go and be baptized by him? Unless, perhaps, what I have just said is a sin of ignorance. End quote. Others have suggested that Jesus set an example for us, that just as he was baptized, we too should be baptized. Jesus' baptism inaugurated his public ministry by identifying with what Luke describes as, quote, all the people, end quote. He allied himself with the faults and failures, the pains and the problems of all the broken and hurting people who had flocked to the Jordan River. By wading into the waters with them, he took his place beside us and among us. Not long into his public mission, the sanctimonious religious leaders derided Jesus as a friend of gluttons and sinners. And in that regard, they were surely right. With his baptism, Jesus openly and decisively declared that he stands shoulder to shoulder with me in my fears and anxieties. He intentionally takes sides with people in their neediness and declares that God is biased in their favor. As we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God's abundant mercy Jesus declared, is available directly and immediately to every person. It's not the private preserve doled out by the temple authorities in Jerusalem. Jesus' baptismal solidarity with broken people was vividly confirmed by divine affirmation and empowerment. Still wet with water after his cousin had plunged him beneath the Jordan River, Jesus heard a voice, and he saw a vision. The declaration of God the Father that Jesus was his beloved Son, and the descent of God the Spirit in the form of a dove. The vision and the voice punctuated the baptismal event. They signaled the meaning, the message, and the mission of Jesus, as he went public after 30 years of invisibility. 
that by the power of the Spirit, the Son of God embodied his Father's unconditional acceptance of all people without exception. And now for further reflection. Why do you think Jesus submitted to the baptism of John? Consider the re remark of John Howard Yoder on John the Baptist. According to Yoder, quote, to repent is not to feel bad, but to think differently, end quote. And from the Old Testament reading this week, Isaiah 42, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And finally, consider the functions of water to heal, to cleanse, to nourish, and to quench thirst. Wading into the waters, the baptism of Jesus. For books this week, I review a book by the Vietnamese medical doctor, Dang Thai Tram. The title is, Last Night I Dreamed of Peace. It's translated by Andrew Pham, with an introduction by Francis Fitzgerald. New York, Harmony Books, 2007, 225 pages. Last night I dreamed that peace was established. So writes Dang Thai Tram in her diary. Oh, she writes, the dream of peace and independence has burned in the hearts of 30 million people for so long. For peace and independence we have sacrificed everything. So many people have volunteered to sacrifice their whole lives for these two words, independence and liberty. I too have sacrificed my life for that grandiose fulfillment. But Thai never saw the fulfillment of her dream. She was only 27 years old when on June 22, 1970, American soldiers put a bullet through her forehead. Dang Thai Tram was born on November 26, 1942. She was a surgeon fresh out of medical school who headed a field hospital in the remote mountain jungles of Vietnam. She operated without anesthesia. She rebuilt her clinic every time it was bombed. She tended to the peasants whose villages had been burned and bulldozed. She hid in her underground shelter and suffered the atrocities of war. Children stepping on landmines. Helicopter gunships in the middle of the night. Forests stained yellow by toxic defoliants. Napalm bombs amputees, and patients like Khan, a 20-year-old victim of a phosphorus bomb whose charred body burned to a crisp, still smoldered with smoke an hour after it was admitted to her clinic. The sparse possessions found with Thai's body included some medicines, a rice ledger, a sunny radio, and this diary. When the American soldier, Fred Whitehurst, found the diary during the mop-up, he violated military regulations and kept the diary. He took it home with him in 1972 after three tours of duty in Vietnam. 
In April 2005, he was able to deliver the diary to Thai's 81-year-old mother and three sisters, who published it in Hanoi on July 18, 2005. In the following 18 months, Thai's diary sold 430,000 copies. This, in a country where two-thirds of the citizens were born after the Vietnam War ended, and where books rarely sell more than 5,000 copies. Much like Clint Eastwood's movie Letters from Iwo Jima, Thai's diary tells the story of Vietnam from the perspective of our enemy. She's a fervent patriot devoted to Vietnam's revolutionary resistance. She longs for acceptance with the Communist Party, which suspects her admitted which suspects her admitted bourgeois background and attitudes. She rages with hatred against the American invaders, whom she describes as imperialist killers, vicious dogs, bloodthirsty devils, and terrible, cruel people who want to use our blood to water their tree of gold. More importantly, Thai's diary reveals the longings of a fellow human being who misses her mom and dad, and aches with loneliness for her boyfriend. Francis Fitzgerald's introduction, numerous footnotes that explain historical details, and two dozen family photographs complement Thai's deeply human dream of peace. Dang Thai Tram, last night I dreamed of peace. For film this week, I review The War, a Ken Burns film, Disc One, from the year 2007. By the time World War II ended in 1945, 50 to 60 million people had perished, most of them civilians. Here in America, 16 million women and men donned the uniform and some 405,000 of them died. Thus, says Burns, World War II was necessary, but it wasn't necessarily a good war, as we've been taught to say. Disc number one of Burns's seven-part documentary contains episode one, A Necessary War. It covers the period from Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, until the end of 1942, when America won its first victories against the Japanese in the Pacific Islands. Burns views the war through the lens of four American towns, showing how their citizens and soldiers experienced the war. Laverne, Minnesota, Sacramento, California, which, by the way, then had a population of 7,000 citizens of Japanese ancestry, Waterbury, Connecticut, and then Mobile, Alabama. The archival film footage of actual battle, along with the personal stories of the soldiers and families who were interviewed, combined to show how, in Burns' view, the war, quote, brought out the best and the worst of people, and then blurred the two. The War, a Ken Burns film, disc number one from the year 2007. And finally, for this week, we've posted a poem. It's typically called the Peace Prayer of St. Francis. 
We actually don't know the author of this classic prayer, and it was not until the 1920s that it was even ascribed to St. Francis of Assisi. By one account, the prayer was found in 1915 in Normandy, written on the back of a card of St. Francis. But it certainly emulates his longing to be an instrument of peace, reconciliation, and redemption in our fallen world. The Peace Prayer of St. Francis Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in self-forgetting that we find, and it is in dying to ourselves that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 13th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.